Good morning. Good to see you this morning. I'm looking around. I noticed that nobody brought a goat this morning. I think the uh, folks that cleaned the building will appreciate that. I see no turtle doves, unless you're hiding them under the pew. How many of you brought a bull and tied it out front? Nobody? I didn't think so. You know, those sound like strange questions and strange comments, but there was a time when they wouldn't have been strange at all. The reason why they're strange today is because we serve a sit-down Savior. I'm going to flesh that out as we go along. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. And you know I'm a big fan of reading big chunks to get the whole context. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will of God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. I want you to make special note of that last line. That's actually not the scripture. <laughs> I want you to make note of that last line. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. What is this saying? It means everything for us. It means that we serve a sit-down Savior. And you're thinking, Chris, you keep using that term. What does it mean? Well, so hang with me here. Let's go back to two Old Testament passages. We could go back to more, but let's go back to two in particular. Let's go to Exodus chapter 29, and starting at verse 38, here's what we read. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with a lamb. 
The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. So you got that one. Keep that one in your mind, and let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And in verse 8 it reads, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve him, and to bless in his name until this day. The theme of the entire book of Hebrews is better than. That's the entire theme. It's better than. All the things that came before Jesus, Jesus fulfilled, and it's better than those things. Take a look at this impressive chart that I put together. Really nice, isn't it? Thank you. What can I say? I like graphs. I like charts. We probably don't need this as much as first century Christians, at least the people that the Hebrew writer was writing to. However, it shows the better than concept. How Jesus fulfills or makes better all the things that came before him. What you need to understand about those leaving Judaism and coming to Christianity is that they, they had a hard time getting past their past. And I can sympathize. You know, I grew up in a religion that once I became a, a, a Christian, I, I had a hard time leaving some of those things behind. It was difficult for me not to celebrate holy days, especially Lent. It seems so foreign to me not to celebrate Lent. But when you look at what the Jews who were leaving Judaism and coming into Christianity, if you look at their mindset, you can sympathize somewhat because, I mean, it seemed like to them the rug was being pulled out from under them, right? But what Jesus is saying, the message to these Jewish Christians is, look, you haven't lost anything. Following Jesus is the most Jewish thing you could ever do, right? If you want to be faithful to God, then you should be following Jesus. Being a disciple wasn't a break from their faith. It was a continuation of their faith. You see, Christianity isn't a separate and apart religion from, from Judaism. It's the true form of Judaism. So what the Hebrew writer is conveying through all of this in his letter is that you're not having to give up anything. In fact, you're doing exactly what you should, should do and, and, and what the prophets and Moses and all of those pointed to. It's here. It's Jesus, the Messiah. All those things pointed to this. They were all shadows. Now the real thing is here. Why was this so hard for them to grasp? Well, again, growing up, my faith was connected to pageantry and ritual. So I could literally see and smell the incense. I could touch the holy water with my hand to my face, to my chest. I could genuflect and make the sign of the cross while I looked at a statue of Jesus. I could see the breaking of the Eucharist. These were all tangible things. And please understand, you've, you know me well enough to know I'm not bashing my upbringing. My granddad did the best he could. And in many ways gave me a bit of a head start. But what I'm saying is that I understand 
the tangible nature that the Jews were so used to. And now Jesus comes along, and these are things that, that can't all be seen, right? These are unseen things. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And then the Hebrew writer goes on to mention men like Noah and Moses and Abraham and how they struck out with just a promise from God, right? You see, the Jews had been used to a stand-up religion. Notice chapter 10, verse 11 again. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never, never take away sins. So I have a, a few diagrams of the tabernacle, okay? So I know it's a little granulated or, or pixelated, but that's the best I could do. So this is the, the courtyard, the tent of meeting within the courtyard. You see, you know, the, uh, you know, all the different elements and the different furniture. Actually, here's a better, a better picture that kind of looks a diagram from above. You have the holy place, the holy of holies. You have the veil that separates the two. The holy of holies, of course, is where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. You have the uh, lampstand. You have the table showbread, the bronze laver, the bronze altar. Here's another depiction of it. I don't know how much you can make of that. Try to get it in black and white so it was a little easier to see. But this gives you an idea, a conceptualization of the tabernacle and the early worship system. One thing that you don't see in any of these depictions is a chair, a couch, a love seat, a recliner. You want to do some light reading sometime? Go back and read through Exodus and Leviticus, and you get a detailed description of all the furnishings of the tabernacle and the old system. What you will not find is a chair. And do you know why? Because the priest could never sit down. His job was never finished. It was a stand-up religion. A priest never had to worry about joining the unemployment line. He had a job. And it was a continual repetitive job that could never bring about the final absolution of sin. So it was a frustrating job as well. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. I like how William Barclay uh, comments on this passage and on Hebrews chapter 10. He says, every morning and every evening. A male lamb, one year old, without spot and blemish, was offered as a burnt offering. Along with it, there was offered a food offering, which consisted of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of pure oil. That is a measure of flour equivalent in volume to around three liters and about one liter of oil. There was also a drink offering, which consisted of a quarter of a hen of wine. Added to that, there was the daily food offering of the high priest. It consisted of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and baked in a flat pan half was offered in the morning and half in the evening and listen to this there was a kind of priestly treadmill of sacrifice I like that phraseology a priestly treadmill of sacrifice because that's what it was the priests were just running on the treadmill they were busy spinning all the plates they were getting you know the, the sacrifices ready and offering them but they were truthfully never really getting anywhere because they could not bring about the final absolution of sin. The routine of the priest was sacrifice and offering, offering and sacrifice day in, day out, 
week after week, month after month, year after year, you think about how many lambs and bulls and goats were sacrificed, that were killed in the 1,500 years from Moses to Jesus, time after time. And yet, all this tireless work that the priest did could not bring about, could never take away the sins of the people. Now, the word take away, the words take away, in verse 11 of chapter 10 of Hebrews means to strip off. And if you want a good uh, uh, image there, think about guys, when we jump in a pool, we go swimming with our shirt on. You ever try to take your shirt off after you've been swimming and it's soaking wet? It's hard to do. And that's what sin does. It clings to us. And so the idea is to strip off here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. It's difficult to strip away. And you think about the uh, Old Testament priest, and you put yourself in their sandals. And, and let's say that you become a priest at age 20. And you serve as a priest until you're 100 years old. And every day, in the morning and in the evening, you offer, you sacrifice a lamb. By the time you're done, by the time you die, you will have offered 58,400 animals or somewhere in that neighborhood. You would have produced a river of blood, but you would not have produced the final absolution of sin. Look at verse 12 again. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. But, do you notice that? But he... What does that little word mean? Well, it means that uh, there's, there's something coming, right? But means that you and I and every disciple of Jesus Christ is going to be with him for all eternity. Our salvation hinges on that little word but. So underline it, circle it, highlight it, do all the above in your Bibles because that little word draws a contrast between a stand-up religion and a sit-down Savior. You see, on one side you have this priestly treadmill of offerings, right? Day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, slaughtering the animals, making sacrifices before God, always standing, never sitting because their work was never finished. But on the other side, you have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, and in between, you have that little word, but. Despite all the slaughtering, the Old Testament priests could never bring about the final absolution of sin, and therefore they could never sit down. But, but then Jesus came along and did what they could not do. One man, one offering, one sacrifice paid the sins for all, for all time, and he sat down. And he sat down because his work was finished. And let me tell you, this is what separates Christianity from all other world religions, right? There's a few things. First of all, other religions teach adherents how to earn their way into heaven or how to earn the favor of their God or gods. Christianity teaches that God came to us, right? For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us before we did a single thing for him. God didn't wait for us to, to get things straight or to get lined out before he did something about our sin problem. Other religious systems have rules in place so that one can appease their God or gods. 
Christianity is all about a loving relationship with God. Yes, there are boundaries. Yes, there are rules. But those rules are put in place because God loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. And everything is based on that relationship. There are laws or pillars to be followed for many adherents of other religious systems in the world in order to get to heaven. But the separation between us and God was appeased on the cross, right? And the biggest difference between Christianity and and other world religions is that our Savior's tomb is empty, right? The tomb is empty. We're the only people who follow a leader who's not still in the ground somewhere. Jesus being our sacrifice would not mean nearly as much had he not rose from the dead. My point is this. Virtually all other world religions are stand-up religions. Adherents must maintain a scrupulous diet, make a pilgrimage once a year, avoid certain foods, prove your loyalty to your God or gods. Adherents must stand up and obey man-made rules from man-made leaders. I read an article recently about a missionary who was uh, in Kathmandu. And this missionary was over there. She noticed that, uh, that there was this ceremony, this ritual. This gentleman got a duck and he laid its head and its throat on a, on a concrete block and he slit its throat and he, and he sprinkled the blood over a statue of a, of, a, of a god of theirs. And she said, it pained me to the core. It hurt me to see these people bowing down, not realizing that they don't have to do this. That there is a sacrifice available. Having no idea that they didn't need an animal sacrifice. That they were engaging in the ritual of a stand-up religion. Not realizing that Christ has made it possible for them to sit down. Christianity is not a stand-up religion. However, we can make it one, can't we? I mean, absolutely we can. When we have an incorrect view of God from Scripture. When we see God as nothing more than a taskmaster. Who's making sure that we cross every T and dot every I. Or else he's going to turn us into a french fry for all eternity. When we view God as some tyrant or dictator. Incorrect perceptions about God and about Scripture and the way it presents God. Believing that we can somehow earn or merit our favor before God. That's, that's very similar to these stand-up religions that we've been mentioning. The difference between a stand-up religion and a sit-down Savior is that Jesus did the standing so that you could do the sitting. That doesn't mean that we don't have things to do. That doesn't mean that we can just be passive in our Christianity. Faith, pistis in the Greek, is an active verb, Right? It's about doing something. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we are passive as Christians. But when Jesus said, it is finished, what was finished? Well, it, right? Well, what was it? The sacrifice for our sins. And if you're like me, I have, I have trouble not trying to help out God, right? You do that? We live in a performance-based society. As a former athlete and a coach, I tend to base everything on performance. And, you know, I find myself getting roped into thinking, well, if I just did more, you know, if I could just do more to earn God's favor. 
But that's not how this thing works, because I could never do more. I could never do enough to earn God's favor, right? I don't deserve any of this. But I can easily fall into the trap of a stand-up religion if I'm not careful. Not recognizing that Jesus sat down and therefore I can, I can sit down in the knowledge and the confidence that I am saved. This whole year we have been talking about Jesus is and filling in the blank with a characteristic of Jesus. And hopefully we beat the horse enough that it's been killed millions of times over, but hopefully you've got the idea that this following Jesus thing, this discipleship thing is about a relationship. That's what it's about. Some default to rules. Well, it's about following the rules. If I follow the rules, I can get to heaven. I'm not saying you shouldn't follow the rules. You absolutely should. But this is about a relationship first and foremost. That's what Jesus died for. He died for the relationship. God is trying to set right what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Paradise lost, revelation is paradise found, right? Starts in a garden, ends in a garden. Everything in between in the Bible is a story of redemption. It's God buying his people back because he wants that relationship with them, which is why he sent his son as the ultimate sacrifice because he knew we couldn't do it ourselves. So I was trying to come up with a really good illustration to tie all this together, figure out a way that I could put an exclamation point on this sermon. So I, I, I Google, trying to find sacrificial stories that might kind of tie all this up, and put a nice bow on it. And I read a lot of stories, great stories. You know, a, a soldier sacrificing his life for his fellow soldiers. Or a, a mother going without so her kids could eat. All great stories. All noble actions for sure. You think about a sacrifice bunt in baseball. But you know what? None of those hold a candle to this. None of them. Not even close. Yes, there are some noble things that have been done in the name of sacrifice, but none of them, none of them compare to the shredded body of Jesus hanging on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can sit down in the confidence that you are indeed saved. Do you have that confidence? If not, don't leave here without it. We want to help you. If we can study the Bible with you, if you'd like to discuss next steps in faith, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and become a dedicated disciple, Whatever your need is this morning, please don't leave here without being right with God. Why don't you come as we stand, as we sing.